Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Patrick, we're back. Another episode, Hanu Health Podcast. I feel like it's been maybe a month or so since we did this. I know it's been kind of a little bit chaotic, but how have you been since the last time I've seen you? Yeah, it's all good. A little bit of travel. Kind of, uh, I think things are falling into place, you know, in terms of we've just with a business that was growing and then it was growing a little bit faster and then there was a catch up phase and we were dropping the ball a little bit. And uh, now, I'm proud to say that we were upping our game. So, yeah. So watch out for all those uh, breathing, you know, anybody interested in breathing. You should start to see more and more of us. So so it's all good. We're going through transition. Yeah, I, I like it. But you've piqued my interest. And I'm sure you've piqued the interest of like everybody listening. When you're like saying, hey, watch out. Something big is coming. I just I expect the Patrick hurricane, the oxygen advantage hurricane coming. So it, it, is, is this something that you're going to leave us all with bated breath? Or are you uh, at liberty to say anything just yet? No, I suppose it's like this. We grew organically over 20 years and we did very little in terms of marketing because breathing wasn't something that you could market so well. And, you know, when you're using that kind of trajectory and then you're putting a little bit of effort into it and that's where we are. Um, So, yeah, I suppose our main project is the app that's due out in September, late September. So that's the main one. And uh, the website went live. You see our new training space as well be 4,000 yes. square foot. So it's not my kitchen in my house. It's uh, it's <laughs> specifically built for, for training. So see, so oh yeah, things are coming together. And it's kind of, it's in a way it's great because then I think it comes back to when there's so many projects going on at the same time, your attention is so divided. And I right. don't know, was it Warren Buffett when he was talking to his pilot, a guy called Flint, I think. And basically Buffett said to him, he said, Write down your the twenty things that you want to achieve in at the moment, and the the pilot writes down this list, and he says, "What are the three most important things you want to achieve?" Buffett says to him, and he said, "It's X, Y, and Z." And uh, he said, "What about the other seventeen? Well, the pilot says, "Well, I'll I'll focus on these three, and then if I've got a little bit more time, I'll focus on the other seventeen. And Buffett said to him, "No, no, no." He says, "Avoid the other seventeen at all cost." Just focus on the three. So uh, right. sometimes that happens, you know, that we we do split our attention a little bit too much. And it has to have an impact on stress, but also our attention. And the other thing is that really how many people then they feel overwhelmed that they don't actually get 
to finalize the projects because there's so much, uh, so many things competing f- for them. Yeah, I, I like that, Patrick. Because, and I've thought about this concept a lot because for me, as someone who's really interested in health and wellness and health optimization and well-being, there's so many categories of health that I could, uh, you can kind of become overwhelmed. And for me, I want to learn like a lot about everything, but I also realize too that I am, I'm kind of a niche guy in a sense. Like I know a lot about a little, but I'm very interested in like everything. And so I, I find myself becoming a little bit overwhelmed when I try to dig too deep in too many areas. And I just, my head just gets a little bit spinny and I don't feel as focused and I don't feel like I really retain or learn as much. But when I really sit down and I focus on the things that number one, I'm passionate about, but also my area of expertise, like I just find a lot of fulfillment in that. I think it's actually why I started Hanu Health is because I wanted to get really kind of granular and high fidelity on one subject matter that I thought could be really helpful for people. Um, and it's not to say that we shouldn't learn a lot about other things, but I just find that sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. And so when we kind of refocus and re-engage in those things that we're like really passionate about, that we really want to truly understand at its core, well, then I've just end up finding more value, meaning and purpose in that. So I will say, Patrick, you have made it in the world now. You've, 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 you've focused, you've got your, you've got your lens kind of like zoomed in on, uh, on kind of this area. So uh, I'm sure it feels good. Um, instead of kind of feeling like you're kind of more scattered and all, all over the road there. Yeah, I know. I think it's great. Just, it kind of reminds me though. So your specialization is HRV, but for you to really dive deeply into heart rate variability, you have to take into consideration all of the factors that influence HRV. Absolutely. It's quite, it's quite a few though, isn't it? Um, yeah. Is there, like, if you were to list five or six or even 10 of those factors, diet is going to play a role. So you need to know, do you need to know a little bit about diet? Physical exercise, if the individual is overdoing it or underdoing it. Sleep, um, genetics. You know, there's so much. What, what do you think are the, so your focus is on HRV, and then you have to broaden that again. So yes, so I think I think uh, it's an interesting specialization. Breathing is a little bit like that too. Yeah, what do you think are the biggest factors overall? Yeah, no, it's for sure. And you're right. I do have to know a lot about those areas because like for instance like the first thing that you brought up was like diet now there's a lot that goes with that we could talk about diet in and of itself so how particular food and nutrients affect the nervous system and then therefore affect the proxy for the nervous system which is heart rate variability so that's one component but then the other component too is the third branch of the autonomic nervous system that not a lot of people talk about which is the enteric nervous system or our digestive tract the way we digest food which is certain certainly within the metabolic health uh, nutrition space. So I have to know about that as well. Well, then how do we prep and prime the nervous system in order to digest more efficiently and effectively? So it kind of ends up layering itself. Well, if we're having poor sleep, then how does that then affect heart rate variability, which also affects digestion, which also affects, you know, and on and on and on. Mm. So they're all interlinked, which is Mm. why I do need to know a lot about some certain areas Mm. or maybe at least a little bit about certain areas. But I I would say to kind of answer your question more formally is that 
anything can impact heart rate variability. And that is a very broad 30,000 foot answer, but anything, whether it's poor breathing, whether it's diet, whether it's sleep, whether it's movement or exercise. And then the biggest one I would say would be psychological stress. And then we could throw in kind of, and I mixed in those with the, with the previous answer, physiological stress as well. So we can see there's all these different variables, but yeah, I think like when we think about heart rate variability in and of itself, we know that the single greatest influencer is absolutely breathing. And the reason we know this is because the two primary influencers are respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So kind of the peak to trough differences or the changes in heart rate across the respiratory cycle. And then the second thing that we know is the major influencer is our baroreflex mechanism or our baroreflex response, which is very much mediated by breathing. And it's a negative feedback loop um, that helps to create homeostasis of blood pressure. Now, the baroreflex can indeed be influenced um, significantly by other factors. And so can RSA or respiratory sinus arrhythmia. But we know that the primary catalyst for change in those areas is breathing, which is why we spend so much of our time kind of on this podcast, so much influence in the development of our software application that's focused on biofeedback and that's focused on breathing because we know that it is such an incredible influencer. And I know that I start to feel like when I go on podcast or when I talk on here that I sound a little bit like a broken record speaking to breathing. But I think that while breathing is in the spotlight, it's still something that I think that a lot of people will acknowledge and they say, yeah, I understand the role of breathing, but they still for some reason have not built it into their everyday practice. It's almost because it's like there's not enough that's sexy about breathing just yet that they're like, oh, well, I'd rather go get this tool or this you know, biofeedback, I'm sorry, this um, a biohacking machine or whatever it may be, or like, let me change my exercise routine because that feels sexier. It feels like it's doing more when we're like, now actually we know that there is immense physiological change that is happening when someone is engaging in slow paced diaphragmatic breathing. And again, I mean, and I sound like a broken record, but it's one of the main reasons why we have biofeedback and why we have a uh, HANU is because we want to have uh, people experience experience and see the objective physiological changes. And hopefully that will cause them to want to create a, a habit or a response that's more habitual and becomes a part of their daily routine. So I know that was a really long-winded answer, but I think it does come back to say, is like, I need to know a lot about some certain areas. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that I, the one I keep coming back to the most that I think I'm most familiar with would be actual clinical biofeedback, but also breathing and the effects that breathing has on the nervous system and then therefore changes in these biometrics like heart rate variability and heart rate. Mm. But it makes it very it makes it very exciting as well. And I can remember reading Anthony Robbins' book, I think it's called Unlimited Power. I must have read it back God, 20 years ago, if it's been out that long. Very much of it is, was about changing physiology. Here is a, a world pioneer talking about changing physiology. And it was only recently in a conversation that we spoke, well, what's the easiest way to change your physiology? But for you, the breath, and now with Hanu Health and devices that we can observe that and measure it, these are the tools that I don't think anybody can do without. You know, hmm. I don't know how I would have got through the last 30, 40 years. Well, okay, I came across this the last 25 years, but I can remember at university, I struggled quite a bit. I struggled in the corporate world when I went into it. 
you know, I remember going in of a Monday morning. I absolutely dreaded going in. I dreaded confronting employees or working with employees. Um, and we had pressure top down. And then I was putting it. But I, when I look back, at it, it was really about my physiology. My physiology was not in a good place. And I understand, Jay, there are thousands of people who naturally are leaders, born leaders, if we put it that way. I don't know if we can be necessarily born a leader, but people who have the inherent traits that they can become good leaders without have to address their physiology. Whereas there must be thousands of people like me, dysfunctional breathing patterns, high stress levels in your life, perfectionist tendencies, and all of those things which impact and they impact your ability then to be uh, to be productive. So if you if we were to go into a company and if we were to ask, you know, the HR person of your hundred employees, what's the percentage of your employees who are not reaching their full potential because their physiology is holding them back? And here is where I think there's a massive, massive opening. Motivational speakers were the main kind of talks, you know. A motivational speaker would have been brought in back in the day into a company. All the employees are all fired up for a day or two, and then it's <laughs> they're flat. They're on the ground again. Right. Yeah. They didn't really get anything that they can bring into their way of life for the rest of their life. And this is where breathing is coming in and this, this is where heart rate variability is coming in so yeah so what i would say to people is yeah breathing you may not think it's sexy but uh don't let that deceive you there's a lot going on there and there's a lot going on behind the scenes and also even though you know western society is very much much an extroverted society because breathing is subtle you know some of the best people are those with the introverted tendencies the person who gets their head down and that they thrive in isolation and doing their projects and reaching it, as opposed to the extrovert who loves to talk to talk, but doesn't necessarily walk to walk. So breathing mm -hmm. is about talking to talk. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the important part of it. Sorry, breathing is yeah. about doing it, getting the benefits of it, but it's quite subtle. One of the points you brought up, which was really interesting, was kind of like like where we have come, like from, a, I was thinking about motivational speakers, like going into companies and kind of where we are at now. I think one of the things that happens is, yes, you can get people pumped up and motivate them um, just thinking about mindset change, thinking about it from a cognitive perspective. But one of the things that we know from the scientific literature is that most people's stress response is actually going to start physiologically. So when we think about the James Lang theory of emotion is that people will experience a physiological response. They then place their cognitive um, notion on that response and therefore the emotion will then come after. If we move away and don't therefore address the physiological response, which could be increased respiration rate, more thoracic or clavicle breathing, so breathing from the chest or up in the shoulders, if we don't think about kind of the heart rate fluctuations that happen or increase heart rate fluctuation, decrease in heart rate variability, all of these physiological responses, well, then we tend to miss kind of one of the main, if not the primary components. And it's, again, not to say that the cognitive mindset component isn't important. It's incredibly important. But it can't be addressed alone, just like physiology, physiology can't be uh, addressed alone or shouldn't be addressed alone. So I always think about kind of 
the two in tandem with one another. I think it's an incredibly valuable thing. And I think that's one of the things that like will keep people going is if we say, well, the body number one is going to keep the score. So remember that <laughs> to remember the, that the body keeps the score. And that's for people who have experienced trauma, but that's also people who haven't experienced trauma. It could be micro trauma or it could be just uh, throughout the days or throughout the weeks, years, decades that we have this compounding chronic long lasting stress and the body, it just builds up and builds up this amount of tension and this amount of holding. And what we can do most easily is just tap into kind of the easiest mechanism for really calming the nervous system and then therefore calming down this stress, this physiological and psychological stress, which is breathing. So I just kind of really challenge people as they listen to this, especially if let's say they're dealing with some more psychological stress to not just focus simply on kind of the psychology or the mindset piece, but really focus on the physiology piece and know that they're very much interconnected with one another and that we shouldn't be just addressing one over the other um, or even kind of putting one above the other, uh, but really saying, okay, let's see how they work in tandem and let's see how we can address both components in an effort to build better, stronger, a better, stronger nervous system and more resilience within that domain no i think this is really interesting so just circling back so say for example you're going to make a presentation and for a lot of people it can scare the life out of them so what you're saying is that the body then the physiology of the body during that time is signaling to the mind so if you're going to make a presentation and if you feel a little bit angst about it your heartbeat is going to start increasing your respiration increases um, you're breathing more upper chest and you've all, all of this, these signals to the brain. And now mm -hmm. your brain is in, in a situation that your brain is here to, to almost to get you out of the situation or at least to protect you. And you're mm -hmm. not going to deliver in that presentation. Whereas if you had some control over your breathing or physiology that you would be able to change it and you would be able to be in a better state to deliver that presentation. So that's pretty much yeah. the first point, wasn't it? Yeah, so exactly. So let's say you are encountering a stimulus that um, either has previously made you anxious or caused stress or um, is something that you might perceive could cause you stress. So let's say, for instance, we'll use the public speaking. Um, it, 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 a lot of times we are presented with the stimulus. You know that you're going to go and speak. So there's no emotion tied to it right now. There's just a stimulus, right? There's just a stimulus of you're going to speak speak because of, again, past experience or maybe your perception of what's going to happen or what could happen physiology starts to rev up. And again, this is something that's happening unconsciously. You've just been presented with a stimulus. Physiology revs up, heart rate goes up, maybe your muscles tense up, you start perspiring, woof, you know, throwing sweat off the forehead. And now you're going to make it a cognitive association with that. Oh goodness, the body's revved up. That must mean that I'm preparing for action. Like I might need to get out of here because something could potentially kill me if I go out on that stage. Now that's basically like an, uh, an evolutionary, like, exacerbation of kind of what's going on, but it's essentially what's happening to our physiology. So it's our cognitive uh, uh, labeling that we put on there will come after we've experienced the stimulus, we've experienced the physiological response. And now that cognition can fuel that physiological response because it tends to spiral into more cognition, typically negative, and that ramps up the nervous system even more. So it's a nasty, vicious cycle. Whereas what we could potentially do here, and I won't say potentially what we should be doing here is once we 
experience that physiological response, if we can intervene on the cognitive labeling part, which sometimes we can, sometimes we don't, and it's okay if we don't, we just don't want it to spiral because stress Mm. is inherently there to protect us. So if we label it as, oh man, this is making me anxious, this is making me stressed, that's okay. Like that's just a natural part of who we are as humans and we should be true to ourselves and label it if that's the case. But we can then come back and say, okay, the way we mitigate this, instead of allowing it to spiral cognitively, which will also cause it to spiral physiologically, is to engage in breathing, is to engage in some breath work at this moment. And I find that as we uh, introduce that um, concept, as we introduce that practice, then we do indeed pro, uh, inhibit that that spiraling of, of physiology and of cognition. And therefore, we experience just better resiliency. We're able to mm-hmm. kind of mitigate that those effects and then proceed. This is going to be likely based on two things. One is that individual's ability to be connected with their body and notice what's going on. That's something that we train over a period of time just by paying attention yes. or taking our attention out of our head into the body at different times throughout the day. And the second thing then is how long do we typically think it's going to take that when an individual starts feeling ramped up? I'm assuming that the sooner that they put their attention on their breathing, the more they, they, they're likely to break that cycle of the body sending feedback to the brain, the brain sending feedback back to the body, that if you can notice the tension arising, so even before you go into the boardroom, don't wait in the boardroom. We should be actually changing our state sitting outside the door, sitting in a a different environment so that we are going into the, the boardroom in a more relaxed and calm state. But here's my question. Physiologically, If we got into a state of angst, do you think that if we were even just to have our focus on our breathing for 90 seconds, two minutes, that's going to have an impact? Now, I've practiced it, and I find that even 90 seconds can help. But is there Mm -hmm. anything out there that shows that even short term that now it's not going to be 100%. So we're not going to say you're going to go from a state of heightened emotion down to a total state of calm but you can still make a difference in a short period of time. Would you agree with that? What's your insights on it? 100%. The literature is very clear that we can affect nervous system change, both objectively and then subjective experience um, in as little as 30 seconds. I mean, some people have the ability to do, yeah, some people have the ability to do it almost instantaneously. So I've worked with professional athletes, professional tennis players, who every time they serve, um, they will regulate their nervous system through one deep, diaphragmatic slow breath and they have so much autonomic control and the ability to regulate their autonomic nervous system that we've hooked them up to uh, EMG so we look at muscular tension we've hooked them up to heart rate variability monitors and we've seen that just with that one single breath they can significantly influence those factors so we're talking about a matter of let's say you know if they slow their pace from you know let's say five a five second inhale five second exhale so 10 seconds they're really able to significantly shift their nervous system and this is trainable well I think to your point, we shouldn't expect that we do 30 seconds, you know, a minute, minute and a half of breathing, and that's going to eliminate anxiety. No stress and anxiety can still be there, but we can also use that. We can say, okay, I want to 
tone it down, but what's still left over, I'm actually going to utilize and I'm going to utilize it to help me perform. And again, this is where we start getting into the mindset component. And the research has indicated that yes, physiologically, we can change by breathing, but also we can change physiology through mindset. Instead of saying this stress is going to inhibit my performance, simply stating this stress now is going to help me perform better. It's going to give me better outcomes that actually will inherently change physiology as well. We see heart rate variability go up. We see muscular tension go down. All of these things will actually change. And this is, again, me not saying this. We see this in the scientific literature. There's great research coming out of Stanford University on this. Um, I think that uh, it's just one of those components that like, if people will keep in mind, again, the mindset component plus short-term physiological change, uh, that can come through through breathing 30 seconds 60 90 seconds like the effects are incredible so I think it's not just you Patrick who does this and experiences it I have coached so many individuals including myself I've had to coach on this and I've seen significant results uh, just in helping to change the mindset component on how we view stress um, not as an inhibitor but something that can help us to perform but also just priming the nervous system both before during and after something that we know is a stimulus that causes us stress or that will result in a heightened uh, nervous system response. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. Now I'm going to circle back again. An individual with, who has been prone to trauma and they've had a pretty difficult life situation, very often the take is that this is going to take years and years and years to help amend it and maybe they may never get to mm-hmm. the bottom of it. And then, for example, there's an author that I absolutely love his books called Eckhart Tolle. And Mm -hmm. he talks about, you know, a person with a lot of trauma and difficult situations can go to their psychotherapist and they keep on going back to the psychotherapist and they're talking about discussing it and counseling sessions. And he's saying that it's very much about bringing stillness to the mind. I'm not so sure it's so easy with what Eckhart Tolle is saying for somebody with trauma. But on the other hand, is it necessary for that individual to continue to do counseling sessions and counseling sessions and counseling sessions? I'm just thinking about somebody where breathing relates to trauma. And there's sometimes a risk that people who have trauma, that when they focus on their breathing, they get anxious. But then we can do small breath tolls or like even going for a jog with the mouth closed, going for a walk with the mouth closed, you can still change your breathing patterns without having to pay attention to it. What do you think is the most, if somebody is listening and they do have trauma and they feel that it's kind of a never-ending cycle, and I know it's only going to be an opinion, but at the same time, it's based on your experience, which is very important. That individual, is there, is there such a thing as a, as a direct route to getting to it? It's a really complicated question, and it's complicated depending on how complicated the trauma is. Um, yeah, what, I, what I would say is that there should not be a level of expectation if someone has experienced trauma that when they start engaging in breath work or if they start engaging in biofeedback, they shouldn't expect that they're going to see the significant movement of the needle and it's going to affect them immediately. Um, And the reason being is because the difference between someone who has experienced trauma and then someone who has not experienced trauma is that 
those who have not experienced trauma do not have a significantly dysregulated nervous system. And, uh, and I would say central and uh, autonomic nervous system. Um, and, and when I say significant, what I'm talking about is that trauma lives and breathes in our memory. And it also lives and breathes in our limbic system, which is directly tied to our emotional response. And we think about trauma, most people will typically think of the the so-called amygdala in the brain. And the amygdala is kind of responsible for that fear processing. When that becomes dysregulated, uh, what ends up happening is that the, that the signals that are sent to the amygdala become much more sensitive and the consolidation of those memories become much more sensitive. And then the retrieval of those memories become much more sensitive. When we try to utilize breath work as a mechanism to impact or blockade that signal, it's a lot more difficult for the person who has experienced trauma because of the sensitivity of these neurological uh, systems. And so the end result means is that it requires a lot more time a lot more frequency uh, to make significant changes in those areas. So what I tell people is that if you have trauma that has caused significant autonomic dysregulation, the expectation of I'm going to do one breathwork practice and I'm going to see these huge swings in heart rate variability, I'm going to see these huge swings and maybe the cognitive spiraling that we were talking about earlier, um, I think that that will set them up as a recipe for failure if that's the level of expectation. But what we know, especially in the biofeedback literature, is that the more and more that individuals practice this type of practice combined with an empirical or evidence-based practice psychotherapy for PTSD, that we don't see the need or necessity for these individuals when they're doing kind of this combination therapy to go years and years and years of for, for PTSD type, type treatment. We actually see that there can be some very large scale movements in a relatively short period of time. So when I say relatively, again, I'm speaking of, you know, what we see in the literature is that if people engage in evidence-based therapies plus biofeedback, we can see, you know, months instead of years, depending on, again, how complicated uh, the trauma was, um, how recent or extended the experience is. So there's a lot of nuances to that. Um, but I think that just knowing what are the expectations for someone who's experienced trauma and then why is the training going to need to be a little bit different for that individual? It all comes back to kind of how significant is the impairment of autonomic dysregulation. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your, your question. Yeah, it does. You know, the potential here is enormous, though, because there's many, many people with trauma that are dealing with it in different ways, but not necessarily addressing their breathing patterns. And mm. when there's such a dysregulation of the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system, breathing is one way to influence both systems. And for those individuals, it could offer a very important step forward. I know in terms of one of our instructors works with um, veterans and he's a nurse. We did a podcast well, it's a while back and we had we were joined as well by one of our other instructors and he was a former cocaine addict and heavy drug user. So a lot of trauma there, a lot of dysfunctional breathing patterns. And he used the breathing techniques as a way of helping to overcome the addiction. And I think with any person who has such an addiction to drugs, you know, really what they're doing is looking to bring some silence to the mind. That if we can help to calm the central nervous system, if we can help to, to, to balance the autonomic nervous system, 
we may be able to bring some silence. So the potential here is enormous. I would love to see more research in terms of breathing, going yeah. beyond mindfulness, not just paying attention to the breath, but actively changing breathing patterns and going beyond. Because normally when we hear about cadence breathing and resonance frequency breathing, there's very little mention of nose breathing, but there's also very mm-hmm. little mention of tidal volume and minute ventilation. So there's two crucial mm-hmm. parts that are overlooked. So you could have an individual who is practicing 10 minutes of slow breathing to six breaths per minute twice daily, but they're having their mouth open at night and they're having sleep disorder breathing as a result of compromised airways, narrowing of the airways. And this is going to affect their ability to bring balance, but also how are they breathing then during physical exercise? And um, there was an interesting article that was written and I'll send it on to you. It was by researchers in Salzburg at a university in Salzburg looking at breathing during running because they were talking about this is prob- probably the most favorite pastime for most people or so many people throughout the world. And yet mm-hmm. breathing during running is only starting to get some attention now. So they broke it down. And um, it's really interesting. They spoke also about a cognitive component and a psychological component that nasal breathing could help via heart rate variability, et cetera, to, yeah. to improve, um, you know, there's another aspect to it that runners could get the benefits of improved well-being from a psychological and cognitive point of view by adopting breathing practice during the runners, during their run. So in other words, it's not just something that we have to be sitting down to pay attention to, that we could actively bring breathing into exercise and there could be tangible benefits there as well. Well, Patrick, I know we've been been bantering for a while now. We've gone about 30 minutes into the podcast, but some great uh, subject matter for sure. Uh, but it's, it's what we always do. So hopefully it was helpful and informative to people, especially if they've experienced, uh, you know, just kind of like a misunderstanding of trauma, misunderstanding of stress and their response. Um, so hopefully that was helpful. But I know we've got some questions to get to today. So you mm-hmm. ready to jump into our questions? For sure. Let's go for it. All right. So this is the point in the podcast. If you are new to our podcast, uh, where Patrick and I will answer user submitted questions. So if you have a question for Patrick and I that you want us to answer on this podcast, just send us an, an email at podcast at hanuhealth.com, or you can submit a DM on Instagram at hanuhealth, and we'll answer your question um, if it makes sense for us to answer it. I mean, if you ask us something you know, kind of off the wall about you know who we're voting for in the next election, probably not going to answer that. But if it's, it's about breathing, nervous system response, stress, HRV. We love it. So let's get to this first one that comes from Kelsey. So Kelsey, thank you for submitting. It is, I have come, and I love this question, by the way, Patrick, um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this one. We, we might even spend the rest of the time talking about this concept, uh, but it's, Kelsey says, I've come across more and more research on the physiological sigh as an immediate stress reducer. Thoughts on the physiological sigh versus not slash mitigating the desire to sigh that Patrick has mentioned in the oxygen advantage. So the first thing that we'll probably do here, Patrick, is we might need to clarify some terminology um, because I, I just don't want us to kind of go throughout and talk about these concepts without like opening up kind of maybe what Kelsey's referring to. When, so when she's talking about and referring to the physiological sigh, and we can put that in quotes, um, this is actually one a, a term that was coined by Dr. Andrew Huberman. 
And if people aren't listening to Andrew Huberman's podcast, Huberman Lab, they should. It's incredible. He's a phenomenal neuroscientist. People who are who have listened to kind of me talk know that I have a bit of a man crush on Andrew Huberman because I really just enjoy his content. But he's talked about kind of this role of actually conscientiously um, – almost like reenacting a sigh as a breathwork practice. So when we talk about a sigh, and we'll open up the physiology of a true physiological sigh, this type of practice is conscientiously sighing. So what does that look like? Well, he terms it as, and this is what has been found in the literature, as an inhale through the nose, a pause, a brief pause, then another inhale, small, short inhale, and then an exhale. So for people watching on YouTube, or if you can hear it on the podcast, I'll now perform a physiological sigh. So it's an inhale, pause, another short inhale, and then exhale. So that is the practice um, that we're referring to. Now, what we should also then clarify too is like, what is an actual sigh that occurs? Like, what is the purpose of a sigh? Uh, why is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And if physiological sighs that are not like a conscientious practice, if they're a bad thing, then why would we do kind of this practice that is supposedly a good thing? So I'm going to pause now, and Patrick, maybe I'll let you take this one. Can we talk, just talk about the role of an unconscientious sigh um, and, and why we do that and what the purpose of it is? And is it a bad thing, good thing, neutral thing? I'll let you take that one. I think it's a great question. So the definition of a, of a sigh per se is when the volume of air that you breathe is three times normal. So normal tidal volume during rest is 500 ml. And a sigh is when you were breathing three times that volume during one breath. And we're talking about rest here. I always remember, you know, when people coming in and they sigh a lot, it tells me that their breathing is not ideal. So frequent sighing is very much associated with people with anxiety, panic disorder, but people also when they are feeling uncomfortable. And then the Mm -hmm. question we have to ask is, when is a sigh not good? And how do you define this? And this is the, the real question. I don't think anybody has the answer for. As far as I know, Dr. Andrew Huberman, he talks about we sigh naturally once every five minutes. I'm not so sure. Um, If I'm Mm. talking to a group of 20 or 30 people, and normally I'm pretty good at picking up on people's breathing patterns, especially when they sigh, because a sigh is pretty evident. I don't see this happening in everyday life. So I don't always see it happening so frequently. Now, then we have to ask the question, well, if you're sighing once every every minute, is that bad? Two minutes, is that bad? Three minutes, is that bad? Four minutes? In other words, where's the cutoff point? There is, it is normal to sigh at different times throughout the day. And that's very, very normal. Why do people with dysfunctional breathing sigh more frequently? And for part, I would say it's down to alleviating the feeling of air hunger that they can have such a strong chemosensitivity to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. They're feeling a little bit of air hunger and they unconsciously take that full big breath to get rid of more carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And this gets rid of their feeling of air hunger. Now, the large full big breath that they're taking is also likely to stimulate the vagus nerve via the, the movement of the diaphragm. And also, it's almost that there's a stretch happening. You're stretching everything and then you're relaxing it. So there's probably a number of things happening. But the only problem is, if somebody is frequently sighing, it can keep them stuck in dysfunctional breathing patterns. 
So maybe we should divide this into an unhealthy sigh and a healthy sigh. And a healthy sigh is normal. That's when it's happening, you know, throughout the day at different times. But how frequently does it occur? I don't know the answer to that. An unhealthy Mm -hmm. sigh is when you're sighing frequently and it's helping to keep your breathing pattern dysfunctional and that you're removing too much carbon dioxide from the blood. I think this raises more questions than it answers. And we do have to bear in mind, you know, any time that we see somebody sighing frequently, is that really a good sign? And then I would ask Mm. the question, would it be a good thing to be doing to be sighing frequently throughout the day? Well, the only thing that that could say to me is, could it by could you by doing that, you're getting rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. One sigh can remove between seven and 16 millimeters of carbon dioxide from the lungs and hence reduce it in the blood, even though it takes a little bit more time in the blood. But if you were sighing frequently, could it instigate a breathing pattern disorder for an individual? So sometimes I would say is, how would I work with somebody who's coming in with frequently sighing, frequent sighing? I would measure their control pause or their bolt score. If it's less mm-hmm. than 25 seconds, and normally it's going to be about 10 seconds, and it could even be less because of that irregular breathing pattern. And when we are breathing irregular and you're feeling that air hunger and your breath hold time is very low, that's going to also put you into that increased stress response because you're not typically having that relaxed and prolonged exhalation. You're having a fast exhalation. And it's the irregular breathing pattern that information, what's it telling the brain? You know, if we look at studies of exams before doing, say, students before doing exams, the students with the most anxiety had a faster respiratory rate, increased tidal volume, and irregular breathing. So irregular breathing is normal when we're feeling anxious, but somebody who is feeling stressed or somebody who is irregular breathing all the time, I suppose it's a little bit like the communication from the body up to the brain, how we breathe what are you telling the brain? So Jay, I don't have a full answer. Um, I think it's really Mm. interesting. I think it delves that needs a little bit. It would be very interesting to put these questions to Dr. Andy Huberman. You know, what about somebody who's saying once every one minute, every two minutes, Mm -hmm. every three minutes, every four minutes, every five minutes. Um, you know, I would probably use breath hold time as an idea that if your breath hold time is very low and you're saying frequently, it's not ideal. But if you have a decent enough breath toll time above 25 seconds and you notice that you're sighing every seven minutes, that's probably more likely to be normal. And the individual yeah. down with a very low breath toll time, again, because it can be associated with panic disorder and an exaggerated alarm response to the feeling of suffocation or air hunger, going very, very gentle with breathing exercises, as you mentioned earlier. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think one of the key concepts that Dr. Huberman um, tries to convey, or at least how he explains it from a physiological perspective, is that he says that, uh, and, and I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on this, because I'm not sure if I have enough knowledge base to speak uh, intelligently about it. Uh, but he says that the key component when you are conscientiously um, and consciously practicing a f- the physiological sigh as a actual practice is that when you inhale and then you pause and then get that last little bit of 
air in um, to f- that he explains it that we are actually helping to expand the alveoli, so these small sacs within the lungs to get that little bit more oxygenation, and that can help effectively utilize our lungs and to um, maybe more efficiently kind of utilize oxygen. Now, I'm just kind of interested from your perspective and what you know about the physiology of breathing, the expansion of these uh, so-called alveoli, these little sacs um, that are in the lungs. What are your thoughts on that from a physiological perspective? Um, so, Because that's kind of his take is that it's that practice can help with that, which mm-hmm. then helps with better oxygen delivery, which then therefore helps with decreasing overall stress response. I think it's going to point down to the frequency of it. And I would be a little bit cautious about people adapting it and frequently sighing because of the long-term impact it can have on their breathing. Uh, on their breathing. In terms of alveolar ventilation, If you have a fast respiratory rate, you typically waste more air to dead space. So basically, every breath that we take into our body, the last 150 mil of that air doesn't arrive in the small air sacs. The last 150 mil of air is staying in the nose or nasal cavity, in the throat, in the trachea, the bronchi, and then the first 16 branches of bronchioles. And if you were breathing fast, So say, for example, 20 breaths per minute. Well, you've just wasted 20 by 150 mil. So you've wasted whatever it is, three liters um, of air in terms of if if I have in terms of the the, the waste to, to dead space. Now, if you take one big breath, one full big breath, you can be taking in three liters of air in that one full big breath. So the tidal volume is dramatically increased, even when you subtract 150. You've got a huge volume of air that's reaching these small air sacs in the lungs. Two things, points that I would make there is in terms of the human lungs itself, the greatest concentration of blood flow is in the lower lobes. So just be conscious when we are taking in the physiological sigh, where are you ventilating? Are you ventilating primarily the upper chest or actually do you, are you taking the air down into the lower parts of the lungs? because that's going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So even though you're taking that full breath, are you ventilating here or are you ventilating down here? So one number one would be the frequency of it. I think the analogy of the alveolar ventilation, that's correct in terms of reduced dead space. The pause at the end, so you're, you're breathing in, taking a full breath and pausing is interesting because that pause will allow more oxygen transfer from the lungs into the blood. But then again, we have to ask the question, if you want to improve alveolar ventilation, yes, go for a run. And instead of breathing fast and shallow, mouth fast and shallow, breathe nose slow and low. And that will improve your alveolar ventilation. Um, Throughout your day, instead of having the habit of breathing fast and shallow, you're wasting so much air to dead space, you're putting yourself more into that increased stress response, breathe nose slow and low. So yes, Along those lines, um, it, it would make sense in what he said in terms of alveolar ventilation. You know, I, it's sometimes when I hear individuals that I respect, like Andrew Humer, I absolutely respect him. Uh, sometimes when they say things, um, you know, about kind of they, they've kind of perused the literature, they've studied the science, and kind of they've come to the conclusion that, you know, whatever practice is like the, 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 the best evidence-based practice. Like I tend to go and, and still like kind of research it myself, I think as any you know, good scientist would do. 
Um, he's the one who coined that term physiological sigh as like an actual conscientious practice. And I've looked at the literature to see if there's any studies on the influence of this practice on heart rate variability and autonomic nervous system change. And I haven't come across any. Um, so I would be really interested just to see kind of what uh, that would actually look like. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest one that continues to come up in the literature would be, you know, slow paced resonance breathing. And I think that, you know, you and I have talked before that it's an absolutely phenomenal practice, but there could be some pitfalls as well, especially if we, uh, you know, just speak to cadence and we don't speak to the other factors of breathing. Uh, but that's the one that I think has, uh, not think, I, you know, we've seen that has the most evidence for autonomic nervous system objective change, so heart rate variability. And, and, and there's probably a good reason for it. I mean, Dr. Paul Lair, who sits on the board of Hanu Health um, as an advisor, I mean, he's one of the ones who's pioneered these types of studies. Um, and so, you know, once you find something, you're going to really start to study it over and over and over again. So the literature is going to kind of pile up in one direction. And I just understand that's the way it goes. But I, I hope to see kind of in the future, and maybe Hanu is going to drive some of this as well, just more research in some of these other types of practice to see, okay, how do they affect kind of these objective uh, measures of the autonomic nervous system? Not to say that every single practice um, isn't going to be effective if it doesn't move the needle in terms of autonomic nervous system change. Uh, but it does have, or at least it shows a good representation from a nervous system perspective of what these practices will do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think mm. that as kind of to your point, Patrick, you know, people shouldn't just go around and like try to sigh all day. Like I think that it could be potentially beneficial as they kind of sit down, like you practice it as kind of like one of your routine breathwork practices, but saying like, oh man, like every, you know, five minutes, I'm just going to start sighing for a while may not necessarily be the best thing. And then again, back to your point and correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, it's that we do know that there is a natural kind of there's a natural sigh response that occurs that that everybody has that's not deleterious or detrimental to health. But if we know that there's significant dysfunctional breathing for a certain individual or individuals, that continuous or maybe constant sighing that can occur that can be deleterious to health or it is deleterious to health. Am I right in stating that, or is that an overstatement? Yes, this is just an observation. Observing people coming in over the years, especially those coming in with anxiety and predisposition mm -hmm. to panic disorder, you really see it. And it's not that everybody with anxiety and panic disorder frequently sigh, but it's very common. And even if you're just around your work colleagues and you start to notice them getting stressed, it's very common that they sigh. So a sigh is associated with either a breathing pattern disorder when somebody is doing it frequently or if they're feeling uncomfortable. And that's why I always would ask the question then, well, if you deliberately do that, okay, well, then you could argue, well, then the sigh is bringing relief to that individual. But we also know that chronic hyperventilation can be maintained by occasional sighs. So people with a poor breathing pattern, with a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, Every time they have a slight elevation of CO2 in the blood, if their body is reacting by having this big sigh, well, then all it's going to do is keep their chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide um, quite strong. And there is a link here as well in between our chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide and the sensitivity of the baroreflex that you spoke about earlier. It doesn't get talked about so much. It's been in a few papers here and there, not a whole lot. 
that's an interesting one. And just for those people who are wondering, well, what is chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? We would have covered it um, during our chats before, but basically carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. And every breath that you take, even during physical exercise, carbon dioxide, the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the blood has a major, has a significant influence on your breathing pattern. So you can imagine that as carbon dioxide comes from the tissues into the blood and blood pH drops and the brain is reacting by sending an increased stimulus to breathe. But if we are overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, our breathing is that bit faster and harder. So for somebody who has got a low breath all time, which is an indicator of their chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, whenever they feel or whenever there's a slight accumulation of carbon dioxide in the blood, their body can react quite strongly and that can manifest as that sigh, but that frequent sighing can keep them stuck in that place. Yeah, this definitely needs more exploration. This is a great question, though, Kelsey. I really appreciate you submitting Mm. this one. I've had a lot of people ask about uh, the role of the physiological sigh um, because I think, you know, uh, Dr. Huberman has popularized it, which is which is good. I mean, he's bringing awareness, you know, breathing. Um, But I, I think, too, that we don't want to have a misunderstanding of kind of what it's what you're going to experience when you do this. And then also, I think we don't want to have a misunderstanding of some potential downfalls of constantly sighing all day, um, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. So Mm, great mm, question, Kelsey. mm. Jay, I'm just thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to get Dr. Huberman's insight in this, you know? I would love it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Got the connection. So send it, o- send it over to him and let's, let's, let's get him in on it. I love it. All right. So let's move on to the next question, which comes from Jonathan. And Jonathan asks, can a person with cystic fibrosis or other lung conditions perform the same breathwork exercises for the improvement of stress levels? Is it recommended for this type of population considering the amount of stress that people with these medical conditions suffer with? So this is a great question. Um, So let's speak to, uh, maybe we should first clarify what is cystic fibrosis, but also too, in order to make it a little bit more generalizable, we'll talk about other lung conditions as well. And Jonathan put that into his question. Um, So again, cystic fibrosis, pretty rare condition. It's not a super common condition. Um, So I was actually looking at the statistics. Um, It's uh, less than about 200,000 cases per year of people diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And we talk about medical conditions um, that's considered pretty, pretty rare. Uh, but basically this causes kind of this mucus, um, uh, uh, almost like a, a, a mucus upload or a mucus holding. Yep. Stagnation within the alveoli that we were talking about and within the lungs that can cause some significant breathing concerns and can actually be life-threatening if it's not taken care of. Um, so cystic fibrosis can people that have that condition, and then we can talk about other lung conditions, whether it be asthma, CO, PD or anything else that we want to discuss here. Like, should these people be doing breathwork practices, Patrick? And if they should, should it be modified or should we just like stay completely away from it? So let's say you on this one. Now I've worked with people with CF. Fibrosing of the lungs is when the lungs are losing elasticity, partly be- they're becoming stiffer and losing elasticity of the lungs really puts it, it, it makes breathing more difficult. These individuals, it's a dreadful condition. The average lifespan is 40 years of age. It's relatively common with individuals with Celtic inheritance. So it's actually probably more common in Ireland 
than it is in the United States. Normally, when I see somebody with CF, their breathing is pretty poor. It's it's a fast respiratory mm-hmm. rate. They've got a higher metabolism, which is going to drive that. They're caught for breath. They feel air hunger. And I think the slow breathing five seconds in and five seconds out could be too difficult for them because they may have a respiratory rate of 20 breaths or even plus per minute. And bringing it down automatically to six is too much of a gap there. I would always start them off with small, gentle breath holds. And I would alter the size of the breath hold to no more than half their control pause or bolt score at that time. I've seen bolt scores of three seconds with CF. Now, I've also seen it with people with long COVID. So these are the individuals, just for those of you not aware of what a bolt score is or the, the body oxygen level test, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose with your fingers, and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. As I said, with CF, I've seen a bolt score as low as three seconds. Now, with that individual, their breathing is an effort. They're really feeling uncomfortable. They're, it's going to put them into a stress response, you know, even irrespective of their condition. Their breathing pattern is going to put them into a stress response. I think it's very important to teach them to breathe in and out through the nose. You know, they can be prone to chest infections. Um, by breathing through the nose, it can help the, the, the bronchioles open up because you're harnessing nasal nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is naturally, it's antiviral. Uh, you're less prone to colds and chest infections by breathing through the nose versus breathing through the mouth. And also, as any human being, we want to optimize our lung use and not to be breathing mouth and fast and shallow because that's also going to be more inefficient. Uh, it's uneconomical. We spoke earlier on about dead space. If we're breathing mouth fast and shallow, so much more of the air that we are taking into our body is not reaching the small air sacs in the lungs. So even by having the mantra breathing nose slow and low can be very helpful. With cystic fibrosis, it is a difficult condition. So we don't, we don't make, you know, promises. I'm more comfortable working with somebody with asthma, but at the same time, if somebody has cystic fibrosis, I think it's really important to keep an eye on your breathing patterns and start off gently. And uh, the small breath hold exercise that we do is so gentle. And it would be, say, just taking a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinching your nose with your fingers and holding your breath for between three and five seconds. So you hold for three, two, one, let go, breathe in through your nose, breathe normal then for about 10, 15, or even 20 seconds. And then again, breathe in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch and hold three, two, one, let go. And you can Mm -hmm. continue with that. With some people, I would have them do five minutes every hour just to gently calm their labored breathing. And also that breath hold will help to stimulate the vagus nerve. And you're also, as you hold your nose, you're pooling nitric oxide inside the nasal cavity. So then when you release your nose, you're carrying this nitric oxide laden air into your lungs, which helps to redistribute blood flow and is a bronchodilator. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would use it for cystic fibrosis. Now, I've also used it with pulmonary fibrosis. Sometimes I didn't get good results at all. Um, If the individual had such scarring of the lung tissues that, you know, again, a dreadful complaint and normally it's it's a it's a lung transplant for for that person bronchiectasis again we can make good progress with bronchiectasis reducing colds and chest infections um copd it really depends on the degree of reversibility so chronic obstructive pulmonary disease 
it's kind of an umbrella term which would encompass emphysema. And this is when that there's damage to the lungs and damage to the alveoli that the gas exchange isn't taking place. Now, not everybody, though, with COPD, it's not that their their obstruction, the airway narrowing, it's not that it's entirely damaged or irreversible. They can also have a component of reversible airway obstruction. And that's what we can work with by improving breathing efficiency. But of course, if somebody has a lot of deterioration of their lung tissue, we're not going to be able to help. The easiest lung, lung condition to work with is asthma because it's characterized mm-hmm. by reversible airway obstruction. And if you are breathing through the mouth, you're taking cold, dry air, unfiltered air into your lungs. The theory there is that there, you're going to be moisture loss from the airways, which causes the airways to narrow. Um, mm-hmm. There's also going to be cooling of the airways, which is in turn causing the airways to narrow. If you're breathing hard and fast and you're losing carbon dioxide, smooth muscle embedded in the airways constricts. And also if you're breathing through your mouth, you're bypassing the nose, you're bypassing nasal nitric oxide. And for those individuals prone to asthma, they're more likely to have narrowing of the airways. But um, lung conditions um, with asthma and especially with children, like I remember working with some kids, they were frequently hospitalized. And by showing them breathing techniques, it could help to certainly um, make a huge difference in terms of the number of hospitalizations that they are having. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's worth pursuing. Yeah. So I think I think a good takeaway from this, especially for cystic fibrosis, is mm. that it, it's really about small stepping stones. Um, so not just kind of okay. jumping into the deep end here, yes. uh, because if you jump into the deep end, um, it could be detrimental. Um, you know, other lung conditions. I think it probably makes sense as well. And you know, from my perspective too, one of the things that I've seen in the literature, and one of the things that I've experienced a lot in working with uh, with individuals who have these types of lung conditions, especially cystic fibrosis is that when you have a chronic lung condition that causes significant dysfunctional breathing, um, it's almost always associated with heightened stress levels and heightened anxiety. It only makes sense for that to be the case because back to the previous conversation that we had is that we first experience these physiological responses. And if we feel like we're not getting enough air in, if we feel like we're having trouble or labored or dysfunctional breathing, then the body is starting to get that response or that signal that says, uh, something's wrong. Like the, we we are in a in a position, or we have a condition that's going to cause us, you know, to be at um, you know that that's going to lead us to the potential of some detriment. And so that increases stress, that increases overall anxiety. And the last thing that we want to do is evoke more or invoke more anxiety by having you do some type of breathwork practice that isn't really designed for uh, for someone with your condition just yet. Maybe we can step up to that level, but it's really kind of starting at a small level and then building kind of that resiliency up. That group, I wouldn't be comfortable if they were frequently sighing um, or purposely mm-hmm. doing it or practicing hyperventilation. And sure. but using other techniques, Jay, in terms of activating the body's relaxation response, maybe a massage, um, Mm. maybe hugging to stimulate the vagus Mm. nerve, relaxation, Mm -hmm. gargling, humming. Humming could actually be very good as well. Um, So I think it's really, really important that we can, and of course I know you're going to agree, in terms of down-regulating and dampening the stress response. And even though breathing is, is a very good route inwards, 
there's other aspects, there's other things that we can be doing, especially if you're uncomfortable um, focusing on your breath. Well, great question there, Jonathan. Um, we've got one more um, that we're going to respond to uh, now and before we wrap it up. And this comes from Crystal. Crystal says, I'm having a real, well, I'm really having difficulty with cognitive performance. I cannot seem to focus. I find myself watching YouTube videos or scrolling on social media, which is quite distracting. Any tips on things I can do, especially any breathwork practices? Um, this one is probably, Crystal, you're probably not alone alone on this one. Actually, you're not probably. I know you're not alone on this one. Uh, when people get anxious, when they get stressed, uh, when they find themselves just kind of like mentally pulled away from the thing that they want to focus on, a lot of times they engage in these practices like going on YouTube and watching hours of YouTube videos or scrolling for hours among hours on social media. And so I, I think that this is a natural part of the human stress response nowadays. And I say natural response um, because it's becoming conditioned. Um, people are finding that they get this immense dopamine release when they watch YouTube videos or they engage in you, uh, whatever Instagram or Twitter scrolling um, or commenting or whatever it may be. Um, that It's a huge dopamine release, which happens to be a stress reliever for them. However, they tend to deplete their dopamine pretty fast. They have too much of an overload of dump- uh, dopamine, which then causes that depletion. And they keep coming back for more and more and more of it. And they need more and more and more of it in order to to appease kind of their brain. The problem, again, with this is that, um, you know, it's a short term quick fix, kind of like a drug. It's kind of like that, you know, shot of heroin or that line of cocaine and people uh, get addicted to it and it happens more and more. So, Patrick, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. Like when we think about focus, when we think about cognitive performance, when we think about the role that stress plays in cognitive performance and the role of breathing, uh, I'm interested to hear your take. I know you have a complete, an entire book on this. I mean, your book, Atomic Focus, is really all about kind of these notions of distraction and the notion of cognitive enhancement through breathing. So what is your take on this? And what are you kind of seeing kind of nowadays with people in social media and YouTube as a, as a mechanism for distraction? Myself back in the day, I would have been very prone to distraction. Maybe I would have been the ideal candidate for YouTube and social media. Mm. So maybe the first question we should be asking is, are some people more susceptible to getting addicted to social media than others? Um, My own mobile phone, I don't have social media on it. I can't get into Instagram. I can't get into Facebook. So what I did was I just completely barred them. Now, even though we are on social media, but we hire people specifically and that's their work. I think it's very important to be selective about where we bring our attention. I think it's Mm -hmm. also very important to realize that do we really want to be manipulated? And a lot of these platforms are designed with manipulation in mind that they are designed specifically to capture your attention because ultimately uh, you're the product. And the more that you place your attention on this platform, and the more money that these companies can make. So do you want to be really making these platforms a lot of money at your expense? Jay, it's really, why as a society have we become very bored and we're not able to focus with boredom in terms of, not that we've become very bored, but say, for example, we're sitting uh, in a restaurant and we're on our own and we have to wait five or 10 minutes for the waitress to come. We can't sit there in stillness for the five to 10 minutes 
it's a very natural reflex to reach into the phone and start scrolling through mm. it. So we have to mm. fill every piece of space with doing something. And mm. this is where a practice of just taking attention onto our breathing and giving ourselves some attention as opposed to surrendering our attention outwards all of the time. It's coming back to this. If we are practicing distraction all day long, and if we're filling every waking moment with doing and practicing distraction, then when we really need to be focused, we're not going to be as focused because we don't have the capacity. Then the tools are, well, how can we improve our concentration? How can we improve our attention span? One is to be very aware of the external distractions and the external distractions are social media. And then to be aware of the internal distractions, but to change our physiology, not just to be aware of the, the mind because I think it is very challenging for people who, who do have a lot of mind activity, but to change our physiology. And by doing that, we change our physiology by our breathing patterns, but our sleep as well. And of course, both of them are interconnected, physical exercise and diet. And there is a challenge as well as a parent growing up with a young teenager that they have, of course, they have their own iPhones, but then we have to be inherently knowledgeable about the stresses that this is putting on teenage girls, especially. And to realize mm -hmm. that what you're seeing on Instagram or what you're seeing on YouTube, it's not a reflection of normal life. So for me, mm -hmm. I think, I think there should be a health warning on these platforms. I really do. Mm -hmm. Even though we use it wow. and we use it to convey messaging about breathing. Um, it's, I would say to, um, I can't remember the, the, the girl's name or the lady's name, but crystal, Crystal, I don't know. Crystal, do you want to be really giving your attention to to um, these big platforms? They're making money on the back of you. They don't really care about you. Um, am I being too blunt in saying that? And why not be able to, we've only so much time anyway throughout today, is is to, to bring it inwards and to really, to use it as a means of experiencing life as opposed to living in a phone or living in a screen, you know, I'm going to show you this here as my, well, this is our training room, mm -hmm. but here is, there's a reason why I live here and it's literally mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And the reason being is to be able to connect with nature. It's so, so important because nature is in stillness mm -hmm. and there's an intelligence out there. And, you know, I think it's about balance. I think it's about, yeah, spend a little bit of time, but be aware of it. But really, um, yeah, it's about enjoying life. And I enjoy life by getting out into that um, yeah. pastimes, sports, books, and so many other things. And you'll have so many things that will be so fulfilling for you. Get a piece of paper and write down what are 10 or 20 most simple things that you love to do, you absolutely love to do, and focus on those because that in turn then is likely to to make you more aware of the time you're spent on YouTube. And yeah, yeah, that's yeah. just my taking it, Jay. I don't yeah. know you're taking it. You know, I, do, I don't want to be critical either because I understand that the yeah. platforms can be very good in spreading information. But isn't it that yes. balance? That balance is a fine line. You know, it's such a tough one for me because I do see the benefits of social media. Um, as you've mentioned here, I, I really think that there are benefits to social media. I think, though, that the problem is, is that you are right in that these individuals that are behind social media don't inherently have 
our best interest at heart at all times. Um, they are really looking to make a profit. I mean, they're a business, so yes, they're looking to make a profit. And one of the best ways to do that is um, to have people use their product more and more and more and get them somewhat addicted. Now, I don't think they would say or use the word addicted here, but it is a level of addiction. What I think we have to remember here is that why are we becoming distracted so often and why are we being pulled to these things where I think one of the things that I tend to come back to, um, and the, the research tends to come back to is that at the core of this, we are experiencing and we want to experience this in-depth draw of meaning and purpose and connection. And the problem is that the connection that we seek, we think we can find it in social media, but honestly, it's never there. It never ends up being in that place. Uh, and But we keep coming back to it more and more because we almost have that false sense of connection. And it's a great distraction because it's something that, again, continues to help us experience that immense dopamine release. It lights up our brain. It really keeps us coming back for more and more and more. And so I think in the end, my experience of this and what I really think is kind of at the core of this is that we have to just be more self-aware on what keeps drawing us to these things and then say, what can I do when I become self-aware of this draw to kind of blockade it? Is it through breathing? Is it through meditation? Is it through simply changing behavior and walking away, doing something that is so antagonistic to you know engaging in this distraction um, that uh, that again just kind of draws us to 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 something completely different? I think that that would be helpful, um, and in the end, that's kind of what I would my, what I would be drawn to. So for you, Crystal, I think the biggest thing that you can do at this point in time is just to kind of take a little bit more of a deep dive into kind of the root cause of this. Like why is there inherently um, kind of this draw to utilize YouTube, to utilize Instagram or Twitter or social media? It's there. Um, and there's no judgment on this. Um, it, it, this happens to far too many people um, and, and, and is a major distraction of getting things done. And it can cause a lot of stress and it can cause a lot of anxiety. It can it cause depression as well uh, because we don't feel fulfilled afterwards. We just feel like we did a hit of drugs and now we kind of need some more and it wears off pretty quickly. So that's my thought. Uh, unfortunately, um, and, uh, and I didn't stop speaking during this, but we lost Patrick. It looks like he accidentally got knocked off. It might've be the internet there in, in, in Ireland out at his, uh, humble abode uh, that he showed on the video was out in the middle of the country, which is awesome, but he hasn't logged back on. So I'm just going to, uh, end it myself. Um, so I, I wish, uh, Patrick could end it with me today, but Hey, it's, it's tech. It happens. So I'm going to finish today by reading a review. Um, so one of the things that you can do is if you go on to Apple um, or iTunes or whatever it's called, Apple Podcasts, that's what it's called, and you leave us a five-star review, that's, again, how people find us. So it's going to be incredibly helpful and valuable for people finding the podcast. If you write us a five-star review and we read it here on air, um, then you're going to get a free uh, goodie package, which comes from Patrick and Oxygen Advantage, comes from Hanu. We're going to give you a lot of fun stuff. Just tell us that we read us, that we read your 
review, you can DM us on Instagram. You can email us podcast at honeywhealth.com and we'll send you over this package. Just send us your name and your mailing address. So this one comes from grusshopper 99 grusshopper 99. Uh, it's titled phenomenal podcast. So they said, Dr. J and Patrick offer a phenomenal podcast that seeks to inform the public on the importance of managing stress for the improvement of overall mental health. The recent episode of self-awareness and determining stress and anxiety levels was particularly helpful for me in my personal life. This podcast gets me excited. I truly cannot wait to receive my Hanu device. So this was awesome stuff again from Grusshopper. 99. Um, I appreciate you writing a post there for us on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you will, just email us, podcast at hanuhealth.com. Thank you so much. Everybody, it's been a blast. It's been a pleasure being with you. I hope that you all have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time on the Hanu Health Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.